Oh, victorious Christian living. Victorious Christian living. Now, that's not a phrase you often hear today. And maybe perhaps for several reasons, like we're suspicious of those theologies that promise victory, which also tend to promise physical healing and financial prosperity. We're just suspicious of those kinds of theologies. And we're plagued by terminal skepticism and therefore really not at all inclined toward phrases like victorious Christian living. Perhaps we're immersed in a theology that says you need only pray a prayer or answer an altar call and you're in. Victorious Christian living seems rather irrelevant to that construct. Or perhaps we're confused as to what God actually does when he converts a sinner and thus our expectations of the Christian life are confused. To say it another way, we don't know what we were like in Adam. We were slaves, morally speaking, and we're not clear about the freedom we experience when we come to Christ by faith. So this morning, if you'll allow me, uh, I'd like to introduce the phrase victorious Christian living into our vocabulary. Actually, I'd like to introduce it and then immediately amend it. For in my 40 plus years of studying scripture and preaching, I'm convinced that the word victorious in the phrase victorious Christian living, I'm convinced that that word is redundant. You see, true Christian living is by definition victorious. And that's good news for the saint living in a world desperate for good news. Because it's exactly what you need to strengthen you to fight the good fight with joy and with confidence all the days of your life, and especially against those besetting sins which can wear you down and wear down those around you. And it's good news for sinners, enslaved to their sin as all unbelievers are, because there's a way out, not just for gaining heaven, but for gaining freedom from sin's tyranny. Our text this morning is John 8.36. We're going to look at that in a minute. But I want to just quote it to you just to get it in your mind. Jesus said, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. This morning we want to talk about the freedom that only Jesus Christ can bring. Let's start with the nature of freedom itself, spiritually speaking. Let me ask you a question. How were we created? We were actually created with freedom. Freedom to love God with all of our heart, souls, mind, and strength, and freedom to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's how God created us in Adam. But though Adam was created without sin, of course you know this, he was able to sin. Now that ability to sin didn't taint his character, but he did have the ability. And of course you know he did sin. And we understand from our doctrine of original sin that his sin was imputed to everyone, all of humanity, including folks like you and me. And so what happened as a result of that imputation? What happened as a result of sin entering into the world? Simple. Everything was cursed. Humanity and all creation were cursed. And that curse had two 
aspects. You could look at it from the here and now, and you can look at it from the hereafter. Now, for the here and now, we lost our freedom to love God and to love our neighbor. We lost our freedom to do that. We became slaves of righteousness. Remember Romans 3, there's none righteous, not even one. We became slaves to unrighteousness, I mean. We became slaves to sin. We were utterly unable to actually do anything to the glory of God. That's our state in Adam. We can't even respond to the gospel until thine eye diffuses that quickening ray, as the hymn goes. And apart from Christ, death will extend into the hereafter, where we'll lose our freedom forever. In a place called hell, where unrighteousness, godlessness reigns supreme. A place where there's no love, there's no joy, there's no goodness, there's no freedom, there's no God. Just evil and torment forever and ever. So we're enslaved to sin in Adam. We're enslaved to death, both now and forever, if left unamended. That's pretty discouraging, isn't it? But God has not left us without hope. He gave us a promise, a promise, if you will, of freedom. Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, 31. Just about the middle of your Bible, probably Isaiah is, and then turn right, Jeremiah 31, 31, a familiar passage perhaps the classic New Covenant passage. Let me pick it up at verse 31. So Jeremiah 31, 31, easy to remember. The prophet says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now you might ask, Wes, where's the freedom in this passage? That's a great question. Let me suggest that it's in the writing. It's in the writing. You see, the Old Covenant was written on tablets of stone outside of the sinner without providing him the power to keep that covenant. The New Covenant, by contrast, is written on tablets of the human heart, which gives the saint moral freedom to obey. It's the language of enablement. Of power. And that freedom is apprehended by faith, by true faith. Turn to John chapter 80. Chapter 8. John chapter 80. That would be a good passage. 
John chapter 8. I'm going to pick it up in verse 30. John chapter 8 and verse 30. It says, And as he, Jesus, was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, we're talking about freedom from sin's power in this passage. In fact, Kostenberger, in his commentary on the book of John, says that Jesus has set us free from both the guilt and the life-controlling power of sin. So not only from sin's penalty, but also from sin's power. I want you to notice a couple things in our text. First, These Jews professed faith in Christ. Did you notice that in verse 30? It says many believed in him. It says they believed. That's the first thing I want you to notice. But second, I want you to notice that they weren't morally free. But Jesus compares them to Ishmael. That's the reference there in verse uh, 35, the son, the slave does not remain in the house forever. Remember what happened to Ishmael? He was cast out. Hagar and Ishmael were cast out. Jesus is really saying, you guys are like Ishmael. You're a slave. So secondly, they were not morally free, but they were slaves like Ishmael. Third, true freedom comes not from being Abraham's offspring physically, but only through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. But here's the question, how? How does one gain freedom from sin? Not only its penalty, but also its power and eventually its presence. Well, of course, it's through the work of our great triune God. The Father promised freedom through the new covenant. And the Son, through His death, burial, and resurrection, gained us that freedom by enacting, by inaugurating, by mediating that new covenant. You see, Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And that's why every week when we gather, today when we gather, we're going to say, as we hold up the cup, this cup is the what? The new covenant in His blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. This cup, his blood is what it represents, is the new covenant. Jesus enacted, he confirmed, if you look at Daniel 9, he confirmed the new covenant. And so those that are his are constituted righteous. They're constituted holy. They're made free. But how does one partake of that new covenant? There's only one way. By faith. You must be born again, born of the Spirit, regenerated, made alive. 
And Jesus instructed Nicodemus in John 3, you don't need to turn there, that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, of course, on the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, not just the Jews. He loved all the world, Jew and Gentile alike, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Titus says it this way, that when God's love appeared through Christ, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit through faith. The Father promised freedom from sin. The Son secured that freedom through his death, burial, and resurrection. And the Spirit applied that freedom to each believing heart. So here's the question, what does it look like? What does true freedom look like? Turn back to Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36. Again, these are familiar passages. Perhaps the way I'm packaging them make it thought-provoking. I hope so. Ezekiel 36, and let's pick it up in verse 22. The Lord says, Therefore say to the house of Israel... Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules." What does freedom look like? Freedom, not just from the penalty of sin, but from its power. It looks like something new. New, 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 new. You know, that's a, that's a lovely word if you think about it. New. We all like new things. Freedom looks like something new. It looks like a bunch of news. New covenant, new spirit, new birth, new heart, new creations with the ability to walk in newness of life. You know, it's worth pausing for a moment to get a better handle on the promise of a new heart of flesh found here in Ezekiel. Let me ask you this question. What was wrong with the old heart? The old heart of stone. You say, well, Wes, it's stone. Isn't that enough for you? Not quite. It's stone. That doesn't bode well, does it? If you have a heart of stone, there's no life in it, is there? It's dead. That imagery, though, is meant to communicate that it was controlled by sin. It was controlled by sin. The Old Testament says that our hearts were covered, controlled by the foreskin of sin. Now, I know that makes some of you squeamish, but it's in the Bible, so I'm going to talk about it. Our hearts were covered, controlled 
by sin. So what did the Spirit do according to Romans chapter 2? You don't need to look there. What did the Spirit do with that sin which covered and controlled our unregenerated hearts, our unregenerate hearts? He circumcised it. He cut it off at the moment of faith when we were joined to Christ in His sin-killing death, Romans chapter 6. And what was the result? What was the result? We were set free from sin's debilitating power. All things, we learn in 2 Corinthians 5, all things have become new. New. And now we're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness in Christ. We're free, as Romans 6 says, to present our members as instruments of righteousness because sin no longer reigns. Sin no longer has dominion. We're under grace, not law. So we're now free to obey the law, which is to love the Lord our God with all of our being and to love our neighbor in Christ as ourselves. And that's good news. And yet the brilliance of that good news can be somewhat dulled by bad doctrine, which is invariably predicated on bad exegesis, bad interpretation. So I want to take a moment just to talk about that bad doctrine. You said 1230, didn't you, BJ? Okay, yeah, thanks. What is this bad doctrine? doctrine that we're talking about that produces confusion. Well, the, the broad name for it, and, and by the way, I'm speaking objectively here. I'm not talking about my brothers and sisters who might be part of churches that hold to this bad doctrine. Can you make that separation? Can I talk about the doctrine without you thinking I'm too meanie of a bad guy? I'm going to criticize the doctrine, but Our brothers and sisters that are in those churches, we love them. And we look forward to spending eternity with them and correcting their doctrine. Okay, all right. The broad name of this bad doctrine is second blessing theology. Now, we've not time for a deep dive, so let me just say this. It's a theology that says that your justification, your conversion, did not secure adequate freedom to allow you to live a victorious Christian life. It did not secure an adequate freedom to allow you to be free of sin's controlling power in your everyday Christian life. And has, so you need another work of grace. You need more of the Holy Spirit. You need some sort of a second blessing because the first one didn't quite do the job. And this second blessing has a variety of names and faces. Holiness theology, some have referred to it as, or the higher life, or spirit baptism. And many churches, indeed many denominations, including the fastest growing denomination and variety of church in the world, Pentecostalism, are really second blessing movements. Now again, I'm not bad-mouthing Pentecostals. When Sue and I moved up here in 1991 to plant Christ Memorial Church, 
the most welcoming pastors in the area were the two were the, the two pastors at what used to be Maranatha Christian Church and what used to be Community Bible Church. And even to this day, only one's still around, Mike Kriesel. He and I are good buddies. We go golfing. Um, they were very welcoming to me, even though our theologies are quite divergent. So I'm not bad-mouthing them. But that theology has caused a lot of confusion. And at its core, it's really a faulty doctrine of justification. It understates what God has already done in the life of the believer. In other words, it understates the freedom that we already have through faith in Christ. And it leads to a faulty doctrine of sanctification. We come up with all kinds of ways to deal with the problem that we don't seem to have the power to do what God's asking us to do. Not perfectly, but customarily. Now, this bad theology did not happen in a historical or exegetical vacuum, though time again will not allow me to properly put it in its place. I'm just trying to make you aware of where the tensions are. Let's just say that there have been some passages throughout the history of the church that have been taken to buttress this second blessing theology. I'm only going to look at one verse. Romans 7.14. Turn with me there to Romans 7.14. If you want to fight with me about Romans 7 after the service, I'll be right up front here. So come on down. Let me read Romans 7.14. Paul says... For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, until the 20th century, the majority of commentators would take that to be referring to Paul as a believer. Uh, They would lean heavily on the fact that he speaks in the present tense. I don't have time to go through all of that. It's been largely disregarded as a weak argument. Uh, because of understanding the nature of linguistics and particularly how Greek verbs work. I don't want to go into all that. But I want to just simply say that that guy, described in verse 14, is not a Christian. He's not a Christian. Even John Calvin, who takes verses 15 to 25 as referring to a Christian, doesn't take this verse as referring to a Christian. Let me just quote what he says. Calvin says that to be sold under sin, he's commenting on verse 14, to be sold under sin is to be a slave to sin, so entirely controlled by the power of sin that the whole mind, the whole heart, and all our actions are under its influence. End of quote. Now, dear one, this is not the status of a Christian. For if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free of sin's power indeed. You see, Romans 7 is not describing your Christian life. That man is still sin's slave. So let's just step back. You say, well, help me understand, because I do struggle with sin, you say to me. And I say to you, I do struggle with sin every day. Every day, and my wife struggles even more. So help me out. 
Well, first of all, unbelievers are the ones who are slaves to sin. Just read Romans 6. It's unbelievers who are still slaves to sin. And that's what we used to be. When sin said jump, we only asked how high. We were slaves to sin. Unbelievers are not free to do anything good in God's eyes. They're not even free to believe the gospel. Remember what Jesus said? No one can come to me unless what? Unless the Father draws him. Not even free to believe the gospel. Again, the famous hymn is appropriate. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You see, an unbeliever is so entrenched in enslavement to sin that he can't even believe the gospel. The diffusing of that quickening ray is what frees him up to come to Christ. Unbelievers are slaves to sin. Believers are not slaves to sin. We're not Romans 7.14, who is of the flesh, sold under sin. That's not us. But we are strugglers. We struggle with sin, don't we? There's not a, a, an orthodox believer that doesn't acknowledge our struggle with sin. That prayer that we prayed this morning from the Valley of Vision, we're asking God to help us, aren't we? We're praying desperately for deliverance, aren't we? But here's a good question. Why is it that we struggle with sin? Wes, if we've been freed from the penalty of sin, if we've really been freed from the power of sin, why do we still struggle with sin? Oh, because the Son has not yet freed us from the presence of sin. We're still waiting for the hope of total righteousness, Paul says in Galatians 5. In short, sin is still present in our lives. And its presence blurs our vision. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 13? We see through a glass darkly. We sin because death has not yet been swallowed up in victory. We sin because the curse has not yet been fully lifted. And the devil and his minions have not yet been cast into the lake of fire. If I could borrow an analogy from the theologian Greg Beale, it's D-Day in the Christian life. But it's not V-E day, victory in Europe day. I mean, World War II hung in the balance. Those of you that like history, you know it hung in the balance until D-Day, which was a successful landing of the Allied forces on those Normandy beaches. Now, from that point on, though the fighting was quite bitter, it was just a matter of time. Everybody knew it. The Germans knew it. The Allied forces knew it. Victory was assured. VE Day, victory in Europe, was just around the corner. And you and I, by faith alone, have landed on the beaches of salvation. We've already experienced the D-Day of our redemption. Now, we're not there yet, and the fight with sin is real, and it's difficult. But victory is assured. 
we're waiting for the VE day when Christ shall return and our victory will be complete. But in the meantime, we're still, we're still free of sin's power. We have the freedom to say no to sin. Let me just stop right there. We have the freedom to say no to sin. This is so important if you're going to make progress in holiness to actually believe you don't have to do it that way because that's the way you've always done it. You don't have to respond that way because that's the way you've always responded. You don't have to think that way because that's the way you've always thought. You see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to coach you up a little bit this morning to get you to believe what's actually true. You have been set free from sin's debilitating power so that you can say no to sin, even those besetting sins, those constitutional sins, the ones that are most prone to drag us down because we've been set free through the gospel, which is what? The power of God. It's the power of God. And he's given us the spirit of God. And we've been raised with him in his resurrection. We have that resurrection power available to us, Ephesians 2 says, to say no to sin. But how does it work? Let's get a little practical here as we wrap up. Remember, before God moved in our souls and gave us life, we were children of darkness. We couldn't see his beauty. The beatific vision was obscured from our sight. But when his eye diffused that quickening ray, we woke and the dungeon flamed with light. And my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Second Corinthians 3 says it this way. We're now free to behold Christ. The veil has been removed. And that beholding is transformative. That beholding is the process by which we become holy. You know, years ago there was a saying, you know, you are what you eat, you become what you eat. No, 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 no. You become what you behold. Whatever you're beholding is what you're becoming. That's the biblical prescription. And so as we behold the beauty of our triune God in the face of Christ, we increasingly become like him, holy, righteous, pure, filled with his love. So here's a question. How do we behold him? We primarily behold him through the spoken word that comes from the pulpit every Sunday and every other gathering where you feature the preaching of the word. And from the unspoken word, time around the table, we're beholding Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we behold him every time we look into our Bibles because the Bible speaks of Christ. He's the subject. He's the theme of the entire Bible. From Genesis to maps, it's about Jesus. And we behold him in creation. For through him, all things were created. We in Vermont have a 
a special ringside seat, don't we? To see the beauty of our Savior as he's declared his glory through creation. And we behold him in the church. How do we behold him in the church? I look out at you and those that know Christ, I'm sure the vast majority of you, those that know Christ have Christ dwelling in them through the spirit of the living God. You know, we even behold him in all of our life's circumstances, don't we? Or we can. Because we know that to know Christ means to experience both the power of his resurrection, there's our joys, and the fellowship of his sufferings. There's our sorrows, our trials. We can behold him, the one who knew joy and sorrow like no other human being in the world. God has set us free. Listen to me, brother and sister. God has set us free to behold and be transformed into his son. You become what you behold. And that will produce increasingly at least three marks, and I close with these. First, it will produce praise. As you behold him, it will produce praise. Jesus praised the Father, Hebrews 2 tells us, quoting Psalm 22. Jesus praised the Father for delivering him from death. And so must we. So can we. We're free. Even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, we're free to rejoice always. We're free to give thanks in all things. We're free to praise liberally and effusively. You see, we're new. We've been made new. We're a new creation by a new spirit who through a new covenant has given us a new heart so that we can walk in newness of life until we finally receive that new body. Hallelujah. Therefore, ours is a new song. Song of redemption. And ours is a new sacrifice. Sacrifice of praise. And ours is a new hope. The hope of the resurrection. As Psalm 108 says, I will sing and make melody with all of my being for what the Lord has already done for me in Christ. So first is praise. Second, becoming like Christ looks like prayer. The Bible says that in the days of his flesh he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Christ prayed desperately to the Father to be delivered from death. And believers too are groaning, Romans 8 says, are groaning for that same resurrection. Yes, victory is promised, but victory must be sought through prayer. What do we pray? What did we just pray? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It hasn't come yet. His will's not being done yet, is it? We're looking to that final victory and we're praying desperately. We groan with creation and the spirit for our redemption because sin and death have not yet been vanquished. 
And so we ask God for grace to live as the new creatures that we are and to walk in newness of life. And then finally, with praise already being given, prayer for the not yet being offered, we present ourselves to him as daily sacrifices. You are free in the Levitical priest construct to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice every single day. We're free to lay down our lives each day for His glory. We're free to turn from our sin each day by His power. We're free to be transformed in Him and not conformed to the world. We're free to successfully and effectively offer ourselves to God. That's what Jesus did. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, not my will, not my will, but thy will be done. He was offering himself to the Father as a sacrifice. And so too can we. Day after day, we can present ourselves and our members as instruments of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the victorious Christian life. Really just the Christian life. It's a life of struggle to be sure, but victorious struggle. Victorious Christian living. There's no other life. And this is your freedom in Christ. This is the freedom that he has won for you. So walk in it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this marvelous emancipation, this wonderful freedom that has been won for us by our great God, the triune God. We bless you for it. We ask you to help us to embrace it. We thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers that we might walk in it. We give this all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.